Let's continue to worship the Lord together with the reading of Scripture. And this morning, the sermon will come from Matthew chapter 11, verses 28, 29, and 30. The greatest promise from the greatest person ever. So Matthew 11, beginning in verse 28. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray together. Father, I pray now in Jesus' name that we don't just study this, we do this. We come to you. The only place we can come to really find rest. Give us grace now as we study the passage that what you most want us to know about you and about ourselves from these revealed words is what we focus on. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, of course, you may be seated and there with your Bibles open to Matthew 11. We'll uh, think through these verses together. I need this promise. One of the reasons I think I'm preaching on this passage this morning is this is the most frequently uh, quoted passage of the Bible that I've had in my own life to myself. Uh, and, and so uh, having spent about a year just coming back to this passage again and again, uh, I wanted to use this Sunday morning to proclaim it. Because uh, the only person that I've spent much time around recently that's not weary and heavy laden is Jesus. Everybody else that I've been around, including myself, fits this description, weary and heavy laden. And when you are weary and heavy laden, you're right at the cusp of saying three of the most powerful words a person can say. Here they are. I gave up. I gave up. I gave up. Three of the most painful words that you can put together in a sentence. I gave up on my church. I gave up on ever overcoming this destructive habit in my life. I gave up on ever thinking things would actually get better. Do you know who gives up? The heavy laden who don't come to Jesus. That's who gives up. I gave up is a powerful statement. Somebody was telling me this this past week about how important it is to put a fourth word in that three-word phrase. And here's the word. I almost gave up. That's that's a testimony, right? That's a testimony in the midst of the the test. And I, I think this promise is the only hope we have to insert the word almost into the statement. So what is the difference between I gave up and I almost gave up? I think the difference is this passage right here. So this morning's message is directed to the heavy laden. So if you're heavy laden, if you're weary, if you're worn out, if you're exhausted, if you're about to the point where it's gotten down to the bones, but to look at this passage, not just to the bones, to the very, what does he say? Those who you find rest in your souls. So remember, you don't have a soul, you 
are a soul, and your very soul can get worn out. So to those who are on the precipice saying, I'm about to give up, to the frustrated, to the worn down, to the discouraged, or maybe you don't feel much of anything, you're just sort of numbed over by cynicism, this message is for you. Because we've all been there. Even if you're not there right now, we've all been there. So, so let's walk through this passage together. The, uh, this past week, uh, two scenes I just want to share with you that I, that I observed. Uh, Abel and I went out of town for a few days, and as we were checking into our hotel, I noticed a young man in the lobby who was um, kind of bouncing on his uh, feet a little bit, and he's nervous, and he kept looking at his watch, and he would glance at his phone, and, and uh, I, I just could tell that he was kind of amped up about something, and as I, I didn't like stare at him, but I was just observing him as I was waiting in line to check in the hotel. And then two other men and a lady came and met him and, and they kind of greeted one another. And then they sat down in the little restaurant there in the hotel lobby. And I could kind of pick up that it was a job interview. And he was kind of been nervous about it and excited about it. And then I, I kind of had a process of about 30 minutes between checking into the hotel and getting the luggage and I would just I, I, for some reason I was just kind of drawn to this young guy I was kind of rooting for him and as the uh, I wasn't I wasn't eavesdropping I just feel like I want to I want to say that I would not like you know I don't feel like I crossed a boundary I was just kind of observing and uh, uh, by the time I had gathered all my stuff and was checking I could tell that the the interview was wrapping up and then they were kind of talking and I could see as they, they were kind of wrapping it up that his shoulders kind of slumped and the expression on his face, and, and then he kind of limped out of the hotel. I took it to mean that he didn't, he didn't get the job. And then later that night, Abel and I were sitting at a restaurant, and again, uh, without crossing a boundary, I feel like I could tell nearby a first date was going on, the way that they met each other at the check-in, and then I, again, not being across the line, but just sort of kept a little check on how that was going. This is all of a sudden sounding kind of strange. Maybe this wasn't a good, maybe this was not a good. <laughs> but I, uh, uh, and, and as the course of that date went over, uh, from the body language, I just kind of picked up, I don't think it was going very well. What are first job interviews and first dates about? It's about hope, isn't it? Maybe this will be the job and I'll get the job. Maybe this is the one. But man, you put together enough job interviews that don't lead to jobs or first dates that don't lead to second dates or disappointments that tack on one to the other, you will inevitably become weary and heavy laden, won't you? Worn out, angry. And so now again, we turn to the words of Christ. This is not a job interview he's giving. It's an invitation to be a part of his family. Did you know that in this passage is the only time that Jesus himself defines his own heart? In all the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's the only time he even says, this is what my heart is like. And so I know we've already read the passage, but I wonder if you were asked the question ahead of time, could you define the heart of Jesus? And before we continue, just know the heart, according to the Bible, it, it's not, of course, speaking about this beating, blood-circulating organ, right? It's talking about your operating system, like the core of your being. It's in the heart, according to the Bible, that um, all your motivations come from. 
The heart is what directs you. The heart is the real you. Your heart determines what gets you going in the morning. Your first conscious thought this morning, what was it? The, the heart is what gets your focus. It's got, it gets your um, energy going. It's what defines us, directs us, what you're most excited about, what you're most fired up about. The heart drives all we do. It's the heart where our thoughts, our desires, our will, our decision-making originates. It's your thinking. It's your memory. It's your cravings. It's your desires, your wants, your decisions, your planning, your purposing. It all comes out of the heart. That's why the proverb says, above all else, guard your heart, for from it flow the wellsprings of life. And that's true of you, and it's also true of Jesus. So everything he does comes from his heart. What motivates him comes from his heart. The control center, if you like, of God himself is defined in this passage. What do you think God is really like? This has been a game changer in my life. I don't define him. I don't tell him who he is or he, who he should be. He tells me. Here are the terms he uses about his heart. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. The terms he uses are, are these, gentle and lowly in heart. So let's take those two terms. First of all, gentle is the Greek word praes, and it means, well, it means gentle. It means meek. It's often translated humble. It's the same word, blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Jesus is humble, he's meek, he's, he's gentle, but what does that mean? Well, although Jesus only defines his heart verbally in this passage, he reveals his heart all over the place. And what I want us to do is take three scenes from the Gospels and see his gentleness on display. So if you've got your Bible, you're in Matthew, turn to the next book, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. And let's look at verse 40. So, so we'll just read three scenes and... Before we read the three scenes, I want to give you this reminder. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? So what you see about him here in these passages, he is like that right now. So Mark chapter 1, verse 40, and a leper came to him. Remember what was the invitation? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. So what's the leper doing? He's saying, I'm going to go to him. And before we read further, just know everything about the leper's life was to not do what he just did. Lepers don't go to anybody. Lepers have to leave from everybody. But the lepers coming to him, imploring him, and kneeling said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, another word, word for it, moved with compassion, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Now just real quick, so much we could pull from all three of these things we're going to look at, but just, did he have to touch him? He doesn't have to touch him. Why does he touch him? Because his heart's gentle. 
We, we know from other scenes that he doesn't even have to be on the scene. Remember the centurion's son, who's, or the centurion's servant, rather, who's paralyzed, and he just says, you need to say the word, and he'll be, he doesn't have to touch him, but he touches him. Why? Because he's a leper, and how long has it been since he's been touched? He's gentle and lowly of heart. He sees a, a leper who has come to him. Do you think the lepers had much rest? Second scene is Luke 7. Luke chapter 7. So we're just making our way <laughs> third and pages left, right? Luke, Luke 7, verse 12. As he drew near to the gate, Jesus drove near to the gate of the town. Behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Another scene of great desperation, that saw it with the leper, and now this mom whose son has died, and what that means is her provision and care has been eliminated. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And it doesn't say, and Jesus just walked off in triumph. Mic drop moment. It is, but look what it says. And Jesus gave him to his, his mother. You see the power, yes, but gentleness, humility, compassion, and care. That's who he was. That's who he is. And then Luke chapter 15. This is the parable of the prodigal. The younger son who demanded from his father an inheritance and then went off and squandered all of his property in reckless living. We're told in chapter 1 of verse 15, as the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear him, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and, and eats with them. So that's the context, that's the audience, uh, these grumbling scribes and Pharisees who, if a young man had done what the prodigal done, the Pharisees and scribes would demand uh, retribution. But Jesus tells a story not of retribution but of grace when the younger son is returning, verse 20, he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son was dead. He's alive, he was lost, and is found, and they began to celebrate. And if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you've just heard a record of remembrance of what has happened in your life, that you have come to the Father, and he's had compassion on you once you repent and come to him. Jesus' heart is lowly, and he draws near the least, the lost, and the left out. We just saw it three times, but I could go on and on with other examples. He's gentle. Second word that we see in Matthew 11 is the word lowly. That's the Greek word tapenos. What does it mean that Jesus is, is lowly? Have you ever been um, 
around someone that you kind of learned not to approach them. Like they're sort of off limits, right? Maybe you've been somewhere and there's a celebrity and they have an entourage and everybody stay back, right? That's the opposite of lowly. Lowly means accessible. It means Jesus is not off limits. You don't have to meet certain qualifications. According to Matthew 11, what is the qualification to come to him? If you labor and you're heavy laden, that's the qualification. You don't have to meet certain measurements or have particular achievements. You don't come to him once you have your act together, amen? Once you're handling all of your burdens, once you've figured out how not to be so weary. See, the fall of sin has brought two terrible things into our hearts, self-sufficiency and autonomy. And friends, we're not self-sufficient, and we're not autonomous. We need him. So how do you come to him? I think one of the reasons Jesus is laying out his heart for us in this way is so you can have confidence that you can draw near to him. How is he going to treat you? He's going to treat you like the father treats the younger son, right? When he sees you coming a long way off, he runs and welcomes No sacrifice is required. Praise God Almighty. Jesus himself has made the sacrifice. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. So I want to give you three three points I want to pull from the, the passage. And here's the first of the three. It is inevitable that you will become exhausted at the soul level... If you seek your hope and identity somewhere other than in Jesus. Say that again. It is inevitable that you will become, and I might insert, and remain exhausted at the soul level if you seek your hope and identity somewhere other than in Jesus. You were made to know God. You were made to abide in Christ. You were made to fellowship with him. What sin has done is it's entered the world and entered our hearts, and now we seek hope and identity and understanding of reality somewhere other than in Christ. So you're tempted to find your identity in your work. It's what Americans do all the time. I I met five people this week on my trip. And as soon as I say, tell me a little something about yourself, do you know what they always start with? My work. Now, your work is important. But it's not your identity. Or you might be tempted to find your identity in your degree, in your sexuality, in your appearance. Those are yokes, but they are not easy. And those burdens are not light. You probably know what a yoke is, right? Jesus is talking about it. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. A yoke is a uh, instrument that they would use in uh, farming to, to sort of yoke <laughs> two ox, oxen. Uh, uh, what's the plural of ox? Um, two oxen together. And often the stronger of the two determines what direction you head, what pace you go at, how you spend your time, energy, and purpose. Everybody in the room is yoked up to something right now. 
I think sometimes as, as Americans, we like to think, oh, no, I'm, I'm self-sufficient and autonomous. Nobody's telling me what to do, and that's false. All of us are yoked to something. And Jesus is telling you, if you yoke up your life with someone or something other than him, you will never, ever rest. In the movie Back to the Future, Marty McFly is accidentally sent from 1985 all the way back to 1955 in a time machine made by Doc Brown, right? He goes back in time 30 years, and the only way to get back to 1985 where he belongs is to power the flex capacitor of the time machine. But once he's back in 1955, he meets the same Doc Brown who tells him it's impossible to get him back because to power the flex capacitor, that requires, anybody remember how many gigawatts? 1.21 gigawatts. And Doc Brown is ready to say, I gave up. And you're stuck in 1955 because the only thing that can harness that type of power is a bolt of lightning that would have to connect to the time machine at precisely the moment the DeLorean reaches 88 miles per hour. So Doc Brown initially is hopeless because he can never know the precise moment lightning would strike, except they do know. Marty knows exactly when lightning will strike the clock tower because of how it happens in the 1955, and he knows from the future. So they move from giving up to almost giving up to putting a plan in action. At the climax of the movie, it's one of my favorite scenes. Doc Brown has everything set up to send Marty back to the future. But as Marty is speeding towards 88 miles per hour, lightning strikes a tree limb, disconnecting that limb, and it crashes onto the wire Doc has set up. And you remember the scene? When Doc looks and sees the disconnection, he gets this look on his face, right? He goes, <gasps> a look of horror and shock. And that is how you should look when you start connecting your hope and identity to something other than Jesus. You should be horrified, but we're usually not horrified. We feel like that's normal. If you connect your hope and identity to something other than Jesus and something other than your sins being forgiven by his grace and something other than your fellowship with God being restored and living for his purposes in the world, if that's true of your life right now, return to Jesus. Or maybe for the first time in your life, go to the real Jesus without an abiding relationship with Christ, you will never have rest no matter your circumstances. You'll tell yourself your whole life, I'll really be able to rest and be at peace when I got a, a greater amount of money or she says yes to the second date or they say yes to the job interview or you've got some other goal in mind. It is inevitable that you will become exhausted at the soul level if you seek your hope and identity somewhere other than Jesus. Number two, resting in Jesus does not mean you are inactive 
Rather, it means all your actions come from resting in and being with Jesus. So if we got a kind of idea in your mind of rest is, you know, sitting at the coast, feet propped up, uh, nothing to do that day, that's not, that's not the rest that Jesus is, is talking about. So here's the simplest way to illustrate it. Was Jesus at rest? Absolutely. Absolutely. He rested in the will of the Father. Was Jesus inactive? Absolutely not. Had Paul learned to be at rest in the Lord? Yes. Was Paul kicked back for his life? No. He is constantly active. So, so let's not have this thought that if I rest in the Lord, it's like going on sort of a worldly vacation and nobody's ever going to bother me and I can just be left alone. That's not the rest that Jesus is, is talking about. Most of our, but here is what he's talking about. Most of our actions are done in an effort to get rest, right? I will work hard. I will earn money so one day I can retire and not have to depend on anyone. Again, the lie of autonomy and self-sufficiency. Or I'm driven to have certain people like me, approve of me, want to be around me, so I will do whatever I need to do so that they will do those things. So here's our life. You're either driven to an attempt to find rest, or you're driven from having found rest in Jesus. Christ transforms your life from will work for food to will work from food. Does that make sense? The invitation that Jesus is giving is not to come to him, get a little something, and then go on your way. Look at the invitation. Come to me and learn from me. Back to the concept of the yoke. You yoke up to Jesus, now you're going to go where he goes. You're going to do what he does. You're going to emphasize what he emphasizes. Your heart is going to become like his. And that means you will become lowly and gentle of heart too. And friends, that is in direct contrast to everything we see around us. When we were growing up, my two older brothers and I, one of the jobs my dad had was a long daily newspaper delivery route, delivering the Fayetteville News and Observer. Monday to Friday, it was an afternoon uh, delivery. Saturday and Sunday, it was uh, a morning delivery. I didn't do the morning deliveries very much, I will confess. But uh, one of us, one of the three brothers, would, would usually go with him to deliver the paper. And our job was to sit in the passenger seat and start rolling newspapers. We'd get the big packets of papers, and they would be in the back seat, and you start rolling the papers and putting them all on the floor until you had so many papers you couldn't even move your, move your legs. And so we, if it were a sunny day or the weather was nice, we'd just put a rubber band on it and be able to deliver. Or if it was calling for rain, we'd put it in a little plastic bag. And it took a couple of hours to deliver all the papers. And you could always tell which one of us delivered the papers with him and it was always really easy to tell all we would have to do is hold up our hands and the one who had the ink stains all over the newspaper from rolling them is the one that had gone with him I can still smell the ink see the ink it's not possible to do the job alongside my dad and it not be evident that we have done the job it's not possible to love serve and work alongside Jesus and there be no evidence 
The evidence is in the lepers. The evidence is in the widows. The evidence is in the forgotten and the overlooked, the left out the least. That's where he's going. I'm not able to say I'm yoked to him, but I've never gone where he's gone. And ultimately, where is he going? He's going to the cross. And I think there is something in us that we want the rest in Jesus without the cross of Jesus. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. I take that to mean that whatever that identity that you are looking to have apart from him, you deny yourself. We live in a generation that says don't ever deny anything to yourself. Jesus says deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. That's the great irony is the only place you ever really find rest is in dying to self. And then third, you are treating people right now on the basis of how you think God has treated you. You're treating other people, your coworkers, your neighbors, your family members, your, your spouse, your children. You're treating where you go eat lunch, <laughs> the workers there. You're treating people on the basis of how you believe God has treated you. So, so if you believe the heart of God is judgmental and legalistic and that you have to get your act together in order to come to him, you are constantly establishing requirements others must meet in order to be your friend. It's simply not possible to come to Jesus on the terms he establishes and then treat people in a way inconsistent with what he has done. You cannot come to him and not learn from him. So I think this is what we can be prone to do. Yes, I will come to him, but then he will learn from me. I'll tell him how he should run the universe, right? I'll tell him what he should do in the country. I'll tell him what he should be doing in the world. I'll come to him, but maybe we'll have a conversation about what he, and, and uh, he, knows, he knows more than you. It's, it's his heart of gentleness and lowliness that we're that way, and he still says, well, you, you come, let's talk it, and let's reason together, says, says the Lord. Jesus, let's not mistake his gentleness that he's a pushover. That's not what he's saying, right? He, he's not some powerless, really nice person, right? This is not an invitation from a really nice man that if you come to him, you'll become nicer. That's not what the promise is. We, we see elsewhere, yes, he's lowly and gentle, but he also clears that temple out, doesn't he? Flips some tables over. And why does he do that in a moment of righteous anger? Why? When Jesus sees... When Jesus sees the means that are supposed to relieve people of their burdens, only adding more burdens, he's righteously angry. The temple is supposed to be a place of rest pointing to his sacrifice. You've made it a den of robbers, he said, and I'm not going to stand for it. We'll flip it, drive him out. Gentle and lowly does not mean passive and pushover, right? It means moving from self-centeredness to God-centeredness. Would people who know you best describe you as gentle and lowly? And the one who knows you best is actually the Lord. Would he describe you that way? In your home, are you gentle and lowly? Your tone of voice, your action. Well, 
is your heart, right? Man, there's so much, so much we could say about the last year. I was thinking um, leading up to this morning that if we just described this, this week, it would fit the description of every week for the last year, wouldn't it? And, and, and there is a phrase that, that I hear a lot that in gentleness I want to correct if I can. I hear a lot that we are living in, quote, unprecedented times. And in gentleness, I want us to know that the times we are living in are precedented. The original audience that Jesus is speaking to here in Matthew 11, for example, many of them are hungry. They live under the oppressive regime of Rome. They lived in violent times, all kinds of shortages. So many of what they face, by God's grace, we won't face today. They live with such loss and suffering. They knew all about weariness. But do you know what is unprecedented? The heart of Jesus is unprecedented. The gentle and lowly heart of Jesus. Now that is unprecedented. Because the best of the Bible saints, Abraham, Moses, David, Ruth, Paul, Peter, Mary, so on and so forth, they all have, they all have sinfulness and selfishness. What is unprecedented is that God is lowly and gentle enough to become flesh and live among us. And this is really important. Notice how it works with God, according to Matthew eleven twenty-eight and 30. The first thing you have to do is what, according to verse 28? Come to him. I, th- I think we want sort of a rest sample. And if we like that, then we'll come. And that's not how God does it. When we're saying come to him, what he is saying is, in coming to me, there are things you're leaving behind. You're you're coming to me and you're all in. Because to use the illustration we've used before, have you ever put a foot on the dock and a foot in the boat? The only reason you can stay there is the boat doesn't leave, right? The boat leaves, you've got to make a decision. If you're going to come to Jesus, don't try to get more and more flexible Just put both feet in the boat and say, I'm going to stay with you because this boat's not sinking. And I believe every other one is. We want to follow him for a little while and then decide if we're going to deny ourselves. It's not how it works. Uh, If you had two oxen and they're yoked up, you don't just come along and put another yoke on top of it. And then they decide, I'll yoke this way. No, no, you take the other one off. And many of us have to say, I'm not with that ox anymore. I'm going to be yoked up to Jesus. I'm going to learn from him. I want my heart to be like his heart. But also notice, it does not say, if you'll come to him, then he'll be lowly and gentle. No, that's who he already is. Did he turn the leper away? Did he say, man, that's gross. Get out of here. Did did he he turn away from the returning son when he's coming from the far country? Grab him by the scruff of his neck and say, man, you blew it. It's not what he does, is it? Did he turn Peter away when he denied him? Did he turn away from going to the cross? No. Why not? The heart is where everything else comes from. It's 
what all our motivations come from. And what is the heart of Jesus? He's lowly and gentle. He takes your burdens upon himself. See, we got to put these burdens somewhere. All who labor and are heavy laden. I don't think the concept is you just set them aside. I think when you come to him, guess what he does? He takes them. Ultimately, all of our weariness is rooted in sinfulness, right? We tried to replace God as God, and that is an exhausting job, amen? And you try to control your life or control things, that doesn't work. You'll be driven to despair or unremitting anger. Only God can be God. And so, so your sins, it's not that God's just saying, ah, let's just cast them aside. It's he's, I'm going to take them, and I'm going to carry them to the cross. So you rest. Is that? No, I thought it was my phone. Well, we're good. <laughs> It might be my phone, so it might be the Lord calling on us. So. We rest. I'm just pausing because I want you to hear these things. We rest because he takes our burdens on himself and he does carry them to the cross. He does take them into the grave. But when he comes up out of the tomb... Those burdens are done in his body. He suffered on the cross with his blood. He covers your sins. So you can really rest. You can really rest in knowing your sins are forgiven. So I think often we want kind of a 50-50 split. You do the forgiving, but I got to do something to pay you back or make up for it. And friends, he says, I'll take it all. Take that cup and I'll drink it dry. Rest in knowing. Rest in knowing that the grief of this world won't last forever. Uh, uh, Gene Carr is an author who put it this way. Hope is feeling that the way you're feeling isn't permanent. The way that I'm feeling right now, man, this, this, this isn't going to last forever, is it? And hopelessness is concluding this is all it's ever going to be. That's why we memorize Romans 8 together, right, and believe it. Yes, there is groaning, but on the basis of what God's done in Christ, we hope and trust that these things will end. The violence will end. The racism will end. The apathy of the important things will end, and we will be at his throne glorifying the one who's overcome our sin forever. So I can rest in knowing that, yes, this is awful things going on, but these things don't last forever. I can rest in knowing that Jesus will continue the work of making me more like him. You yoked up with him? He doesn't kick you to the side, right? We're done with you. No, you stay yoked. <laughs> Rest in Jesus. Does anybody need to come to him today? I really don't think it's a sort of one-time thing. Yeah, I came to him 1970-something, and no, no, I'm gonna, I need to come again today. I need to come to him over and, and over and over for rest. It's one of the reasons we celebrate communion, and that's actually what we want to do right now. I don't know if you got uh, communion uh, items on your way in 
But I simply want to lead us into communion. What is communion? Communion is remembering Christ, who he is and what he has done for us. And so if you got your communion, cups there, let's celebrate communion together. We begin by remembering his body. Hey, friends, he really did draw near. God himself really did step into the world. He didn't forsake us. He didn't leave us. He didn't abandon us for 33 years. He lived in this world. All of its fallenness. His body, he did amazing things. With his body, he reached out and touched the leper. Amen? And not a bit of leprosy got on his hands or in his body. He wasn't made unclean. The leper was made clean. That's a picture for you, friends. If there are things in your soul that are unclean, he can make you clean. In him, there is forgiveness. In in, in his physical body, he, uh, he walks on the water, right? He got tired, needed rest, needed sleep. He is fully God and fully human. Of all the things that he did in his body, I want us to remember that his body was nailed to the cross. Nails driven into his hands and his feet and he hung there. His body was scourged. His body was spit upon. A crown of thorns placed on his head. Before he was crucified, he looked at his followers and said, This is my body. Take it and eat. We do so now together. Communion is a celebration of rest, not only because of what Jesus has done in his body, but also what Jesus has done with his blood. Sin is powerful. The fall's effects are observable all around us, all the time. But they're not the most powerful. They're not more powerful than the blood of Jesus. There is no sin that you've ever committed that is so grievous that his blood can't wash clean. The invitation to come to him is an invitation for you. And we rest in our sins are great, but his grace is greater. I love what one said. My testimony is, I'm a great sinner. Christ is a great Savior. You can rest in your sins being forgiven He took the cup and said, this is the blood of the new covenant. And we remember and celebrate it together. I'm going to invite you to stand now and we're going to continue to rest and remember and celebrate the Lord. We're going to sing together about a God who does take graves and he transforms them into gardens. And as we sing this together, may the Holy Spirit lead you... um, in such a way that you really do find rest for your souls in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we rest in Christ Jesus. 
Pray for anybody here today that's on the precipice of saying, I gave up. They'll have a testimony that I almost gave up, but then I remembered Jesus. Remembered Christ. I remembered his heart. I remember that he's lowly and gentle. I remember that he welcomes sinners and eats with them. I remember that the agonizing groaning of the world right now isn't forever. I remember his promise. He's going to make all things new. But it is so hard not to be consumed with worry while we wait, while we wait. So give us grace, Father. Give us grace that we don't look for rest in the far country. We look for rest in Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.